Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 20th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers Y-Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Uh, ben Pearson is out on a work trip and is not joining us today, but I'm sure he will share uh, all the goodness that uh, he has been up to that he is legally able to talk about uh, next week uh, when he bring, uh, returns back on uh, the water cooler. Uh, but I guess uh, let, let, let's start with what we've been uh, doing uh, it's been a while since I've been at the water cooler. I missed last week's episode because I was sick, and I uh, missed the week before that because I was in Las Vegas attending a uh, convention for magicians called Magic Live. I uh, promise I won't spend too much time on this because I know some people out there just love or hate that I talk about magic on the spot on a movie podcast. Uh, but um, if you want to know what a convention for magicians is like, it's um. It's 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 pretty much like any convention. There's a show floor where you can go buy stuff. In this case, it's magic tricks and magic apparatuses and you know cards and and stuff. There's uh you know these presentations which are kind of like a series of uh, TED talk like speeches. Uh, Mark Summers was there giving a speech because he uh, used to be a magician, something I didn't know. Um, and uh, there is a uh, you know. Uh, there's shows we get to see some magic shows and uh it, it's a whole lot of fun my, my, my favorite part of the convention uh was there's an area it's called I, I forget what it's called it's like a session room where it's just kind of like a room where people hang out and show each other card moves and tricks and you know you get like advice from other magicians but it's not just like other magicians like that stuff happens at the magic castle uh this is like you know the big names of magic like you know there was one point that I was in this room with like 
you know, five or six big names that probably you guys wouldn't recognize names, but these are like, you know, the, the living legends of today and magic and just, you know, watching them, getting advice from them and, you know, hands on uh, face to face time with them was just uh, incredible. Uh, while I was at in Las Vegas for Magic Live, I was invited to this house party at uh, Chris Kenner's house. Chris Kenner is the uh, producer of Dave Copperfield's show. He is a magician in his own right, and he's been his producer for you know decades. And uh, he is a big, huge film geek. I'll actually link in the show notes because uh, his house, uh, he has tons and tons of movie props. Uh, and he has built himself a secret lair, which is, you know, operated by like behind a movie poster. And there's like a Batman suit, which he got from Christopher uh, Nolan. And then you remove that and there's like this whole lair filled with like any sci fi weaponry you would you could possibly imagine. It was just so cool. And uh, again, it was like one of those parties that, uh, uh, you know, just filled with the who's who of magicians and interesting people. At one point I was sitting at a table, uh, you know, showing some card tricks to some other people. And, uh, this guy walks over, not the typical magician type, kind of like a older, um, uh, nerdy guy. And he's like, can, can I show you guys a card trick? And we're like, sure. And he starts to show this card trick, which uh, involves someone picking a card and then it could get, you know, going into the deck, getting shuffled. And then he starts using the deck as if it's an iPhone, like pressing on the deck and acting like he's acting, uh, asking Siri to find the card. And he goes, and by the way, I, I invented Siri. And I was like, wait, wait, wait hold on. W what do you mean you invented Siri? He's like, I'm Adam. Uh, I forget his last name. I invented Siri. I, I also invented change.org and my my latest uh ai company is called sentient and i was like that that's a bad idea um but uh i don't know it was just a crazy crazy place i had a lot of fun uh and i, I wanted to uh to talk about that briefly uh i uh yeah i i guess that's probably all that i've been up to i also went to this uh weekend seminar this past weekend at the magic castle uh for magician joshua J. uh it was an intensive hands-on kind of a thing it was cool uh but i did want to also give you guys an update on amc a list uh which i've been using a lot uh in the last few weeks since i last talked to you um have, have you guys been using a list at all I don't have any AMCs near me, so it's not an option for me. I mean, I've been using it as regularly as I was using MoviePass before, so. I still haven't made the switch yet. So, I mean, I'm considering it, though. Uh, it's just that AMC doesn't <laughs> offer the wide range of movies that I really want to to see. Yeah. Uh, and Chris, you, you don't leave your house, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't actually like movies, so. <laughs> um, uh, I, uh... Yeah, I've been using a lot. I do find that a lot of the movies I want to see, the the smaller independent films, aren't available. Uh, or I don't want to say they're not available. They're available later. Like, you know, I had to wait a few more weeks uh, later to see the Mr. Rogers documentary, which I talked about on here previously. Um, I saw 8th Grade this past week. I'll, I'll talk about that in the What We've Been Watching segment. But um, some things I did notice about A-List is... Every time I go there, there are more people using their A-list. Like this last time, there is uh, one of the benefits of A-list is that you don't have to wait in the normal concession line. 
and you get this like VIP red carpet treatment. It's kind of like a fast pass to uh, you know order your con- concessions. And the last time I was at the theater for eighth grade, the line for the VIP you know uh, A list, the A list line was longer than the normal line. So uh, I don't know. I think AMC needs to figure something out about that. And I got to the movie theater. I think uh, you know. 15 minutes before showtime and I was going to order I was at a my local AMC theater is like a dine-in theater so I, I went to a but it's not like one of those ones you can order at your seat uh, and they they have like milkshakes and stuff and I was like I want to try what, a, what an AMC milkshake tastes like and I went up to order the milkshake and they told me it was gonna be 25 minutes to make a milkshake just because they had so many people in line uh, so uh, you know AMC not as you know, it still has some uh, problems because uh, I think of the popularity. They're saying, you know, just the way MoviePass had problems in the app. I think AMC is suffering some problems with uh, more people than usual being at these theaters. And uh, also, I've also noticed that the AMC, uh, as I'm seeing more AMC movies, that the uh, presentation uh leaves something to be desired during one screening i think i i yeah i saw mission impossible fallout for a second time or actually no that was in the imax i saw something for a second time uh and in the the screen that i was in the ac the sound of the ac fan was louder than the movie so it was it was really distracting and then the last movie i saw eighth grade uh the projector I'm not sure if you guys have ever had experienced this was kind of a, I don't want to say flickering, but it would, it would get brighter slowly and then get darker slowly, like over the course of like a minute. But like the stroke, like it, I don't know, it was really bothering me. Uh, so I don't know. I, 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 I sent uh, comments to AMC, see if they can fix my local theater so that I don't have uh, these uh, annoying problems. But uh, Brad, have you had any, any problems with your local AMC? Uh, I mean, I haven't had any problems beyond what I normally have with my local AMC, um, which is that, you know, it's a theater that is just fine, but not great. So yes and no, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm still enjoying it. I'm still getting my money's worth. Um, uh, but uh, that's the latest on that. Uh, Brad, what have you been doing? Uh, so I just got a couple cool things lately that I felt like I uh, just wanted to bring up because I, I was a big, big fan of them. We've talked about them on the site before, I think. Um, I received my vinyl soundtrack for Call Me By Your Name uh, in the mail. Uh, it is the, it's the limited edition uh, peach scented one and the vinyl is also peach colored. Uh, and it's just, it's pretty fantastic. The soundtrack for Call Me By Your Name is, is gorgeous and it was nice to have it on a vinyl that has uh, a fun reference to one of the more, uh, I don't know, central parts of the movie, I guess you could say. Um, I, I hope, hopefully no one takes the vinyl and does what is done with the actual peach in the movie. Cause that would be perplexing and weird. Um, and then also <laughs> I, uh, I received um, a San Diego comic-con exclusive that I bought that uh, went on sale after the convention. Uh, you, you could pick it up at, the convention floor if you got like a ticket to get the exclusive which was something they changed this year um and since i didn't get one of those i had to wait until this went online at the hasbro shop because they released a black series um new edition of han solo where he's uh dressed like he is in the empire strikes back 
and he comes with the the ventilation mask that he wears when they're inside the the worm on that asteroid after evading the empire and also comes with a minoc uh so i picked that up um from hasbro and that just arrived this weekend it's, it's awesome uh the black series line continues to be the best uh thing that star wars or that hasbro has in their star wars line right now uh so i was glad i was able to get my hands on that figure and didn't have a problem getting it yeah and i i know you talked last week on the water cooler about what you do with uh your figures and how you set them up uh with a with a more exclusive thing like this i i guess your teenage Mutant ninja turtles were also exclusive um, but do you, do you open this or is this like a display piece in the, in, in the box? Because the box kind of displays the figure too, right? Yeah, I haven't opened it yet. Um, but I, I probably will simply because it's one of those things where I, I will hold on to it and I won't sell it at any point. And so it's, you know, the, the value that I would get from keeping it in the box and maybe thinking about selling it one day doesn't really matter to me. So I, I have no problem opening it whatsoever. It's actually kind of interesting because at Comic-Con this year, as you mentioned, they handled exclusives in a different fashion. Like before Comic-Con, weeks before Comic-Con started, you had to enter a lottery. And like for certain, like there was a list of dozens of places that offer Comic-Con exclusive. And basically you'd go down the list and check off boxes of places you wanted to enter for a chance to get a ticket to buy exclusive merchandise at Comic-Con. Um, usually there's lines at Comic-Con and that's how it's dealt with, you know, uh, and I think what happened, um, and I'm wondering what, what you think of this, Brad, I think what happened was a lot of people just, you know, weeks before Comic-Con entered to get tickets to anything. And then when it was at Comic-Con, none of the stuff sold out because the people that actually got the tickets didn't actually want the stuff. They were just entering to get a ticket to anything. And then, like, I'm seeing, like, a lot of these places, like Hasbro, sell their overages online because they they weren't selling out of the stuff like they usually were. Brad, do you have any indication of this? Um, No, I mean, because they had said before, the convention even said that there was going to be stuff that would be sold on Hasbro shop afterwards. I think that Hasbro has, a, has always had a pretty readily available supply of comic-con stuff because even even in the years previous when they haven't done this lottery system hasbro has always sold some of their stuff uh online afterwards so i don't think um necessarily that was a, a problem but i just i don't know i don't like the lottery system in general the good the good thing about it is i guess it only really matters for the bigger um retailers like hasbro and lego and funko all the ones where people are usually making a mad dash to to get in line Funko actually did their own lottery system last year before there was the the overall lottery system for several other um, retailers. So that's it, not anything new, but it's it's definitely frustrating for someone like me who isn't trying to like get every single exclusive and just wants one or two things, you know, for my own personal collection. I think it's frustrating for everybody, Brad. But, I mean, uh, that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, before we get into what we've been watching, let's talk about what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading? Well, I've been reading a lot of articles recently, and the one that really stands out to me is a very long article called Axes of Evil. That's A-X-E-S, Axes and the, the the Cutting Implement, Axes of Evil. And it was published on Atavist Magazine. Uh, um, you can also read it online, uh, written by Josh Dean. And to give you an idea of, of what long read this is, the audio version is also available. It's 90 minutes long. So it's not a, it's not a brisk read. You want to sit down with a drink. And it took me a few sittings to finish it. But it is absolutely fascinating. It is a military story I've never heard before. Uh, it is the true story uh, in 1976 of how uh, the American soldiers at the demilitarized zone 
uh, between North Korea and South Korea, where you know there's that stretch of land that's uh, that divides both countries. Uh, there was a large tree that was obscuring the view uh, in the DMZ. So American soldiers went out to uh, trim the branches uh, so they have a better view of the North Korean lines. North Korean soldiers drove out and met them. And since gunfire is not prohibited in the DMZ, there was a massive brawl where North Korean soldiers attacked the Americans, took their axes that they were using to chop the tree, and killed two Americans. And ignited this international incident was essentially World War III could have broken out because of this tree. And the rest of the article follows Operation Paul Bunyan, where the, <laughs> uh, where the United States military sets out to destroy the tree to, to, to prove a point, to say, like, they, if they let the tree stand after this, they, they will have let North Koreans, you know, put them in a corner, will let them have a display of force and power. So it's this massive military operation, the, the planning extent of which could cause World War III. It's a D-Day-level operation in terms of military uh, engagement with helicopters, jets, uh, reserve troops, um, things going wrong, things going right, uh, the White House interfering, uh, soldiers taking matters in their own hands. It's this dramatic, funny, crazy story that's all about destroying this tree in the DMZ. It is, it at times reads like the Coen brothers, at times reads like Spielberg. It is a truly remarkable, crazy story. Well, Jacob, last time you mentioned a article on here, you know, weeks later, I think the next week, a bidding war broke out to adapt that article into a movie. Do you think this has a chance to become a movie? Well, uh, as we talked about on the show, that uh, I think we did. It was written on the site, at least. Yeah, it was. That article was, that article was written uh, with, with the producer of that movie involved to try to make it into a movie from the get-go. So I don't think this one has that uh, that that, that um, help. I don't think it has a producer secretly attached. Uh, but I really do hope somebody reads this because it is such a crazy great story, and I can imagine it being a really cool movie. Uh, my, I guess my main concern... That it's, it's the kind of movie that required a lot of possible assistance from the U.S. military to get the resources you need to make it. And nobody comes off looking great in this story. Uh, everybody comes off looking a little bit foolish and a little bit dangerous. Uh, so I'd be curious to see uh, who would want to make it and how they'd make it. Yeah. Um, I love the title of this article, Axes of Evil. We will link it in the show notes. H.T., you have uh, been reading an abundance of pieces on Crazy Rich Asians online. Tell us about it. Yeah, so Asian Americans have been coming out in droves to see Crazy Rich Asians in theaters, but Asian American critics have also been coming out in droves to write about this movie. There's just been so many great pieces that have come out in the past week and a half uh, ahead of and after Crazy Rich Asians' release. And I want to just promote a few as well as just talk, uh, talk about how much I appreciate the fact that there's just so many pieces that kind of tackle the wide range of, like, reactions and issues that this movie uh, kind of touches on. So um, first there is uh, actually former slash film writer Angie Han, who wrote for Mashable this really great personal piece uh, called Crazy Rich Agents and the Immense Pressure to Feel Seen and about, um, you know, that sort of pressure to see yourself on screen and the the burden that Crazy Rich Agents has to be everything for everyone and how it can't exactly live up to those expectations at the same time. So it's a really great piece. Uh, there's another one from uh, The New Yorker by um, Jiang, Jiang Fan, 
who uh, wrote How to Watch Crazy Rich Asians Like an Asian American. And it's also a really great uh, personal piece as well. A lot of these are like personal essays and they are, they kind of speak to like everyone's different experiences as an Asian American growing up in America. Um, Alison Wilmart BuzzFeed wrote a really great piece from um, uh, about Crazy Rich Asians and like how often Asians have been kind of viewed as basically white, which is not something that is a really accurate description of the minority community at large. And um, Inku Kang wrote a really great piece for Slate about the Joy Luck Club and how it's time to forgive that movie, um, which was uh, which came out 25 years ago. Uh, but because of that immense pressure of representation, um, the Asian American community ended up kind of turning on it. So uh, those are some great pieces, as well as this really great thread by Rebecca Sun, who just kind of highlights all of uh, another another number of uh, really good Asian American penned pieces about crazy rich Asians. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all the Asian American uh, critics and writers who are writing about this movie and keep churning out great content. And I'm kind of trying to catch up with my pieces as well. Yeah, you've done a couple pieces about the movie as well, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which you can read on SlashFilm.com. Uh, is it possible for you to link all the articles you just mentioned in the show notes to the people yes. who want to check them out? Yeah. Yes, okay. I can do that. Okay, that'd be great. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've been on air. I, I did go to the to an IMAX theater to rewatch Mission Impossible Fallout. And since I saw it the first time at a press screening, I didn't get to see uh, the trailers before the movie. And IMAX occasionally does these, like, special sneak previews. Like, they did it for The Dark Knight. They've done it in the past for The Dark Knight Rises. I, I can only remember Batman movies at this point. Dunkirk. Oh, I only remember Nolan movies doing this. But I, I'm sure other movies have also done this. Uh, but in front of Mission Impossible Fallout... They had a preview for the fir uh, for First Man, the Damien Chazelle uh, biopic of uh, is it a biopic? I guess it's a biopic. Neil Armstrong, uh, you know, the first man to walk on the moon. Okay, so uh, you know, I don't know how long this was. Maybe five ten minutes. It was, it was certainly longer than a normal movie trailer, but it was basically presenting uh, the takeoff of that space mission from the perspective of Neil Armstrong you know we've seen we've seen the spaceship uh take off from earth many times from the point of view of cameras outside of the ship but seeing it from inside as you know it's taking off in like it's just literally like a piece of you know this, this is like metal with a, a rocket underneath it shaking like it's gonna fall apart, and you see the guys in there. It, 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 it's just such a great uh, and exciting preview. I'm so excited for this movie after seeing this piece. And uh, if 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 you want, I, I would recommend. I'm not sure if Mission Impossible Fallout is still in IMAX theaters, but uh, if it is, the preview is in front of it. Uh, it might be worth just going back just to see that alone. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about that film now. Uh, and, uh, I, uh, I saw a couple other movies. I saw eighth grade, which I think you guys talked about last week 
on uh on the water cooler this is bo burnham's uh movie set in the eighth grade uh it, it, no one told me that this was gonna be a horror movie like it's it is like i said that did you uh <laughs> well i i did not hear that before saying it i was like on the edge of my seat my uh this brought all the feelings and all the uh anxiety of being in middle school back it like perfectly captures it and even though it's set in modern times and it's so very you know captures the you know the generation of now it it is so perfectly relatable and it's great and i highly recommend anybody who you know is not interested in seeing this you know go see this in the theater because I, i feel like this is a movie that uh i don't know so some indie movies i feel like really benefit from seeing in a theater with other people next to you while especially those moments that you the cringeworthy moments where you're kind of like in it together with this other group of people watching this thing um and uh what else did i watch i also did watch crazy rich asians uh which i enjoyed i uh i i like john chu's work I can't. I, I actually usually like the the stylistic niche of uh, the the style that he brings to his films, and it usually is kind of a mismatch of like uh, you know, like w- 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 the GI Joe sequel he did. The best moment or the best scene of that sequel is the Snake Eyes fight scene, and I feel like that's the the, the sequence that John Chu was allowed to do. You know, be John Chu, and uh, in you know, uh, now you see me too. Uh, the whole uh, heist uh, breakout scene where they're using cardistry and stuff—it's like you know the the most stylistic. And John Chu gets it. And this film, I, I feel like, actually gets gives him a chance to uh, do that for a whole movie, and it's so enjoyable. I uh, I'm I'm very happy that romantic comedies are you know making a comeback. I, and, uh, it's just so much fun. I love, I, you know, I love the, like the food porn shots that <laughs> it makes me want to go visit China. And, um, yeah, uh, if I had any complaint about this movie, I, I would say that I think the first half of the movie kind of lacks, uh, a, uh, antagonist or so like it, it kind of is like very much just like oh everything's going great uh but the second half definitely you know makes up for that uh but i'm, I'm sure if you're interested in seeing crazy rich agents you probably saw it uh, over the weekend uh and the other thing i've been watching is better call saul which is now on amc uh it's as great as it ever is uh it um i just wanted to uh to say how great, uh, what's her name? That plays Kim Wexler. Uh, maybe, uh, Chris, do you know her name? It's escaping me. It's, uh, Rhea, Rhea Seahorn. Yeah, yeah. She's uh phenomenal. She's, I think she's actually like the best part of that show. Yeah. Yeah. She's just so great in that show. That show is just like the best thing that is on television right now. If you ask me, uh, and, uh, if you aren't watching it, if you gave up, in the first season, you know, go back, watch Better Call Saul, catch up, because uh, you are truly made missing great television. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? 
Uh, I went to theater and caught up with Black Klansmen uh, over the weekend, and I came to this interesting place because uh, as managing editor of Slash Film, I had uh, edited a few spoiler-filled articles about this movie before I got a chance to see it. And so I went into this movie with two articles in mind, uh, one by Candace Frederick and one by uh, Trey Mangum, two of our freelancers, uh, both who had very different opinions. Uh, both uh, were approaching the film uh, as black Americans uh, and both had very divergent opinions on who the movie was for and how it presented itself. And so I, I went in really prepared to be torn by, um, in, in both directions, but I um, ended up loving it. Uh, maybe loves a, a, um, a tough word for a movie that is kind of as unforgiving as this one is. And people talked about this before already, so I don't want to dwell on Black Klansman too much, but to say I thought it was excellent. I saw it 1030 in the morning, and the people in the theater around me were just like shell-shocked and crying when the ending happens. The ending is very much a sledgehammer. The movie does not um, end with racism being defeated. The movie ends with a message that things are worse than ever, and uh, how are we going to deal with this? And it was really a tough moment, but a sobering moment. And uh, for a movie, it's definitely, I feel like Spike Lee, every five or six years, emerges from hibernation, makes a masterpiece, and goes back to making little experiments again. And I feel like this is maybe my favorite Spike Lee movie since Malcolm X or Do the Right Thing. It's it's on the level of those two for me. I think it's a magnificent film. Uh, but I also caught up with The Endless, which came out earlier this year. And this is the new film from directors Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who proves made Spring and uh, Resolution. Uh, they're really interesting filmmakers. They make these extremely low-budget horror movies, uh, very personal, very lo-fi, uh, very high concept. And The Endless is a movie that benefits from not knowing much going in. Uh, so I'll just say it's about uh, two brothers, played by Benson Moorhead, uh, who escaped from a uh, doomsday cult 10 years earlier and decided to journey back and visit uh, the cult one more time. And uh, discover the truth of the cult and all kinds of oddness begins to happen. Uh, it's definitely a bit of a, a slow burner. It is it takes its time uh, getting to the point, which is by uh, design. And because this is a micro-budget movie made for, <laughs> made for pennies, there are certain effects that maybe don't look Hollywood quality. Uh, but, but I don't need like, a movie that looks slick when Benson and Moorhead are making cinema this exciting and this complex and this insane. And watching this was a reminder that, like, these guys probably could be scooped up by a major studio and put the work making big-budget movies and make them great. But they're off in their own corner, carving out their own niche and making these truly wild indie movies. Uh, Chris, have you seen The Endless yet? I feel like it's up your alley. I have. It's, it's very good. It's not my favorite of theirs. I think Spring is much, much better. But this film is so – it's so unlike, like, pretty much anything else out there right now. So it's just – it's um, – I feel like I don't want to use the term. I feel like the term mind blowing is sort of overused, but it definitely applies to this film and just how it unfolds. And uh, I don't know what I love about this movie. Their movies is they're very surprisingly emotional, which you don't really get in a lot of modern like horror. And uh, they have a, a real knack for hitting that like emotional button. Uh, yeah, it's very much on point. And I decided to follow up uh, the endless with a revisiting uh, of Cube the 1997 uh, movie from Vincenzo Natale, because it reminded me a lot of The Endless in that it's another uh, very distinct, very low-budget sci-fi horror vision. And this is uh, streaming on a, in a few places. And I used to watch it all the time when I was younger, because I was, I was kind of obsessed with it in a weird way when I was younger, because it was an example of the 
kind of horror movie you can make with almost no money. There's one room and a handful of uh, actors. And the movie's about a group of people who are trapped in a mysterious maze full of traps and uh, how they try to escape and how they solve the mystery of where they are or how they don't and how uh, they start to crumble under the pressure of survival. And it shows its age in some ways. Some of the CGI, uh, late 90s CGI does not hold up. Uh, but it's such a cool Twilight Zone movie. It has uh, so much going on in terms of uh, ambition, even though it definitely shows its extreme low-budget uh, roots. But uh, it's streamed on Netflix, I believe. And if you are looking for like a movie that's, that's a real showcase for the, how to expand your dollar into making a indie genre movie, uh, Sing, this is a really great example. Uh, and finally, as you may remember last week, uh, Chris watched Puppet Master Little Thrike and was shaking with anger <laughs> how much he hated it. Uh, meanwhile, I had other friends who uh, dug it, so I knew that I had to watch it. And for those of you who don't know, this is the latest movie in the long-running Puppet Master series, but sort of a semi-reboot. It takes place in a alternate universe to the rest of the movies where um, there's no continuity to the previous 12 movies. Uh, and it's... Oh, I don't know where to begin with this movie. Uh, I guess a lot of the controversy, or uh, maybe that's the right word... Bad feelings surrounding this movie comes from the fact that in the original uh, Puppet Master series, the creator of the uh, puppets, the killer puppets, the center of this franchise, uh, created them to fight Nazis. Uh, and even though they became like killer um, monsters later on, their origins were as anti-fascists. So this uh, remake, directed by Sunny Laguna and Tommy uh, Wickland, and written by S. Craig Zoller, a Bone Tomahawk and Brawl in Subblock 99 fame, reverses that and makes the Nazi makes puppets themselves Nazis. A Nazi built these puppets, and they are now Nazi puppets on the on a rampage in modern-day Texas, where it's shot. And that means these, these puppets are literally committing hate crimes whenever they murder people. And it is... I did not hate it. I'm not going to say... I, I, it is undeniably garbage. It is undeniably trash. But it is a movie that I feel is uh, designed to be trash and designed to be in-your-face and offensive. And I found it really endearing in a weird way because I, I found it kind of adorable in how, in how much it wanted to be garbage and how much uh, glee it took in being disgusting. The, the, the makeup and prosthetic effects in this movie are unreal and the, the kills are genuinely unpleasant and creative in ways that I can't even describe here um, because I don't even want to upset anybody who does not like horror. It is They're just unreal and unbelievable and I tweeted that I liked it. It was my phone blew up with people, friends yelling at me for saying I liked it, yelling at me for saying, uh, <laughs> and agreeing with me, disagreeing with me. And so I feel like something you got to see for yourself. Um, I, I After hearing your pitch, this is the first time I've actually wanted to see this movie. <laughs> it's it's certain, and also at the center of it is Thomas Lennon playing completely straight. He like they cast Thomas Lennon in the Puppet Master movie, and he's like this sort of low key, very stripped down performance as a guy who's really depressed over his divorce and is not that surprised that he's being hunted by evil puppets. It is, it is a bonkers movie guys. Uh, and like I said, I don't begrudge Chris's opinion at all. And I don't, interestingly, my wife loved it. My wife was laughing throughout the entire thing and like, and like cackling. And like, I realized that she, she's such a sicko. I didn't realize my wife was so sick until I watched <laughs> master a little strike with her. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't begrudge anybody who hates it. It, it is undeniably garbage it is undeniably in poor taste. Uh, but I found myself on its wavelength. God help me. So, see the way you're pitching it makes it sound like what I wanted from the Sharknado series. 
like just like garbage and knows it's garbage and is feeding on that rather than what Sharknado actually is, which I guess is garbage, but not fun garbage. <laughs> um, Chris, uh, what have you been watching? Uh, I uh, I watched and I reviewed the new Amazon series Jack Ryan starring John Krasinski as uh, Tom Clancy's most famous character and um, it's it's fine. Uh, uh, it's one of those shows where every other character except the main character is interesting. Like for some reason, Jack Ryan is the least interesting part of the Jack Ryan show, which to me is a bit of a problem since the whole show is pretty much centered around him. Um, uh, I, I was a little conflicted because the writing on the show is surprisingly smart and surprisingly sharp and it takes great pains to flesh like all the characters out. Even like the villains get like a lot of backstory, but it's shot in this really terrible law and order way where it's like medium close-ups the entire time. And I don't know, maybe I'm, sp- I've, I've been ruined because I've been rewatching Breaking Bad and that show is so cinematic. Like every shot on that show is like a work of art. And then I stopped Breaking Bad to watch this and everything just looked like crappy, like shot on a phone shots, and it just really like distracted me. So, so I, I was conflicted. Like, so I I didn't hate it, but it's it's so poorly shot that I couldn't really enjoy it. Which is weird because Amazon dumped a lot of money into this, and you know they've been hyping it up. You know, it's their it's their latest big show, but it 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 seems oddly cheap, which I was not expecting. So that kind of caught me off guard. Interesting, because uh, I, I saw the first episode at Comic-Con, and uh, I think I was expecting it to be total crap, and uh, that first episode uh, actually kind of hooked me in a little, but now that you're hearing your review, it doesn't seem like I'm going to follow up on it. Um, but that first episode was directed by the guy that did uh, Passengers, I think? Yeah, and that's probably like the best directed episode of the, the series, and you know, like I said, it's not a bad show, It's it's... You know, it's well written and uh, almost all the characters are interesting, but I don't know. I, I was expecting something better. I just feel like in this day and age, there's no excuse to shoot your show like it's an old rerun of Law and Order. There's just no excuse for that anymore here in the year of our Lord 2018. And uh, <laughs> we, the, should, we, we, we shouldn't be CBSing it anymore, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially, yeah, if this, this isn't even a network show, it's Amazon. They should be, you know, going. The extra mile, but I guess they they didn't. Uh, the other I, thing I watched, I, I feel like the same thing about Sneaky Pete, which is a show I like that's on Amazon, but it's shot in the same kind of boring ish way. Have you seen yeah. that show? I have not. I I, you know, I always see ads for it, but I've never watched it. So yeah, maybe it's just an Amazon thing. Maybe that's how they they shoot their shows. I don't know. Um, the other thing I watched is the Nicolas Cage film Mandy, which is uh, just as good as everyone has been saying it is. This movie is uh, a trip. I, I uh, you know, I had already heard a bunch of rave reviews of this film, just talking about how crazy it is and how trippy it is and how strange it is. And you know, no matter how much I heard, it did, it still didn't do it justice to how uh, just friggin' bonkers this movie is. It's from the director of Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is uh, also a very trippy, weird film, but this is uh, ten times better than that. Um, it's, uh, Nicolas Cage and Andrea Riseborough, they're, they're a couple, they're living out in the woods, and they, they run afoul of this 
very weird cult that uh, basically ruins their lives. And Nicolas Cage sets out on revenge. And, you know, that plot seems very straightforward. It is, when you boil it down, a standard revenge movie. But it's shot in this, this like, fever dreamish way where almost nothing looks natural. But it doesn't look – I don't even know how to explain it. It's just this very, very strange – haunting disturbing weird film and uh i loved it that comes out um next month i believe and if it's playing near you 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 should go see it immediately very cool uh brad what have you been watching uh so i partook in a new netflix movie that arrived this weekend uh there was a lot of buzz about it online through uh film twitter and and whatnot uh it's called to all the boys i've loved before uh, it is a uh, romantic comedy uh, that features Lana Condor, who everyone will probably recognize as Jubilee from the X-Men franchise, who didn't really get uh, much of a spotlight when she was cast in those movies, despite you know everyone being excited to actually finally cast somebody in that role and we're, we're seemingly going to make her uh, a significant character. Um, but it stars her in the lead in this high school romantic comedy, that is seriously super charming and has just like charisma for days and has, has a great young cast at the center of it. Um, and it really is just a, a fun watch. Um, it's, it's another entry in that kind of signals this sort of, you know, comeback that the romantic comedy seems to have since it's been missing ever since the, the mid budget movie in Hollywood started disappearing and people either started making solely blockbuster studio movies or, you know, smaller uh, indie projects and after seeing this movie I, I definitely want Lana Condor to be in so many things uh, she is just so delightful uh, and wonderful and endlessly charming and the, the the movie also looks really good too it's um it's just it's just shot in such in a way that actually it doesn't feel uh, cheap you know there's there's some cool you know landscape shots and just it just feels like a, uh, an old school roman- um, high school romantic comedy my only complaint would be that I wish that it was a bit funnier. It's definitely much more romance than comedy. It feels like it could have used some punch-ups from, you know, some comedians or something like that. But it, it is also based, you know, on, um, you know, the the experiences of a real person. So, um, uh, at least as far as I know, I believe it's inspired by the author, Jenny Han's uh, real life, um, to some extent. So, I, I can understand maybe not wanting to enhance or exaggerate the comedy in that regard um but it's definitely worth watching i i enjoyed it i actually think that i might have liked it more than set it up which is the other romantic comedy that film twitter had been ranting and raving about for a while um but it's it's definitely pretty good i think uh ht you watched this too didn't you i did i adored it um should i go into it or should i yeah go into it Okay. Uh, I also uh, really liked this film, and I think I also liked it better than Set It Up. It's this really charming, really fun, really just um, entertaining film that uh, I I wasn't really bothered by, like, the lack of comedy per se, because it really got to the heart of what makes me enjoy rom-coms, which is just, like, the heart-fluttering feelings that I used to enjoy a lot for, like, especially, for, like, mid-2000s, early 90s. Uh, rom-coms and uh, speaking of mid-2000s the male lead for this film uh, Noah Centineo 
is basically the spitting image of mid-2000s Mark Ruffalo, both in his looks, hair, and his voice. I thought at first like they had cloned Mark Ruffalo because it just was – the resemblance was uncanny, and that was – part of the reason why this film works so much just because this male lead is so good and uh in addition to lana condor of course who is um it's just it's really gets her time to shine here as opposed to when she was in the x-men movie so uh i really enjoyed it it was definitely a return to the teen rom-com that i really like it's kind of got the vibes of 10 things i hate about you or um Clueless, uh, and it has a really cute, very rom-commy trope of a fake relationship, which is one of my favorite tropes for rom-coms. It just made me squeal the entire time. I enjoyed it so much. I'm definitely already planning to rewatch it. Uh, it's just, um, it's a good and, like you said, very stylish film too. I was surprised by like how. Cin- I don't want to say cinematic. Well, yeah, cinematic it was. Uh, all the shots were very. Um, beautiful and well well composed so uh it's it's just so fun and um definitely like net showing netflix has a, a good grasp on this on the rom-com genre right now you guys- i will say that i somewhat disagree with the assessment on the male lead and i he grew on me as the movie went on which is probably the idea but there's something about the way he talks that really bugs me because uh, I love Mark Ruffalo, and uh, the way the, w- the way he delivers dialogue and things like that is very unique, and that's one of the reasons I appreciate him so much. And I don't think that um, Noah quite has that same charm, because the way he says things is a little bit more Dave Franco-ish to me. Like, he's trying to be Dave Franco, and sometimes it comes, <laughs> off, sometimes it comes off a little too douchey to me. Um, so, like, for half the movie, I really didn't like him, because he kind of felt like just a dude bro to me. But by the end, like, I kind of bought into it. I was like, okay, I, I kind of like this guy. Yeah, I know he towed the line for me, and I definitely bought him more as kind of the frat bro or the, the jock with the heart of gold, and I, I really enjoyed him. He was so cute. Uh, All right, I'm just, he's 22, so it's okay. I can gush over him. <laughs> okay, you guys have totally sold me on this. I, I am putting this on my Netflix queue uh, to watch whenever I next uh, have some time. Uh, Brad, what else have you been watching? Uh, so I rewatched Blockers. Um, I we had I had a like a quote unquote sort of date night with my girlfriend. Um, basically, like the only things we can really do long distance wise are like talk to each other and FaceTime. But we also set times to like watch movies at the same time, and then we talk about we message each other during and talk about them afterwards. And so uh, I had recently bought Blockers because it was on sale on Amazon. So I put in my digital code, and I uh, she had access to my Voodoo account, and so. Uh, we watched that last night and I just, I think that movie is so great. And I was, I caught it in theaters. Um, and it, it, I was so surprised by how funny it was and how progressive and clever it was. Cause the trailers made it look out to be, uh, made it look really bad, but it's, it's really, it's, it allows the young, uh, teen girls in the movie to like have as much fun as like Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah did in super bad or, you know, in any of those like raunchy teen movies, it's, it's got a little bit of American pie in it. It's got a little bit of super bad in it, um, and it's just it's it's really fun. And the message in it is great for parents and teenagers. This whole idea of letting you know women be in charge of their own sexual destiny when they're young and figuring trusting them to figure their lives out and themselves and what they want. Uh, and it's also just hilarious too. There's there's still like plenty of lines in this movie that crack me up, even though I had already seen it before. So if if you haven't given Blockers a chance yet, definitely go out of your way to watch it. 
And HT, you mentioned before one of the articles you read was about the Joy Luck Club. Apparently, <laughs> this made you go rewatch this movie. Oh, actually, I've never seen it before. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it came out in 93, which was a year after I was born. So <laughs> I never actually got the chance to watch the Joy Luck Club. So I decided that uh, this being sort of Crazy Rich Asians week and um, to all the boys I love before also had uh, an Asian American lead. I decided to you know, just like complete the trilogy and uh, watch the Joy Luck Club. And I really enjoyed it. It is definitely a weepy melodrama and leans into that sort of um, that genre very much but it's so beautifully filmed um and it's beautifully acted as well there's a surprise appearance from andrew mccarthy which i did not expect i was like oh hey you're in this movie and i for- forgot for a second like what year it was it was made i was like oh, okay yeah i guess that kind of makes sense in terms of late 80s early 90s andrew mccarthy but um it was really good and um I definitely could see the autobiographical elements that Amy Tan inserts into her book. I had finished reading The Bonesetter's Daughter, and I saw like some similar elements elements in um, Bonesetter's Daughter as well as in The Joy Luck Club. So I really enjoyed it, and it was a really beautiful and moving uh, tale of w- women across generations and immigrant mothers and their, their Asian-American daughters kind of struggling with uh, their relationships with each other. And uh, just because you could, you watched the whole Before Trilogy. Yeah. So I have the Before Trilogy trilogy on Criterion. And um, this week I participated in IndieWire's critic survey about Ethan Hawke's favorite best performance. So one of my favorite Ethan Hawke performances is Before Sunset. So I was like, you know what? Why don't I just use this opportunity to watch all three of them as a sort of self-care thing? And I did and enjoyed it so much. The trilogy holds up so well. It was actually my first time re-watching Before Midnight since I saw in theaters. So it was definitely, I've been putting it off, but it was, I think, a really worthy experience to experience all three of them uh at once yeah i would totally like to rewatch them all probably in one night although the experience of seeing them theatrically throughout the years and growing with those characters has been kind of rewarding i'm not sure if i if it would be kind of like a whiplash of like uh you know seeing it back to back and uh i mean i guess it plays right like yeah 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 you notice some of the the kind of what they they pull over, or what they um bring over from each film, uh, which you might not have noticed if you watch like far in between. And I did, I remember like I did wait between before sunset and before midnight, so I really like that experience as well. And it kind of doesn't have that same magic as waiting for the films, but you do see sort of like a more coherent cycle with uh within the three films, which is really interesting to watch. Interesting. Uh, maybe if I get some time. I'll order those uh, Criterion Blu-rays and check and rewatch the Before trilogy. Uh, let's move on to what we've been eating really quickly. Uh, AMC is promoting Better Call Saul by having uh, Los Polos Hermendos. Uh, they 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 opened a pop a pop up restaurant I think last year, and it was like so mobbed, and it was like you know the line was you know hours deep. 
So uh, to promote Better Call Saul, they have opened it up exclusively on Postmates. So you can order, if you're in L.A. or New York City, you can order the famous uh, chicken place from, uh, you know, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. I ordered it today before the podcast and arrived in, uh, you know, that classic, uh, uh, you know, the iconic uh, wrappings that we have seen on the TV show. And it was was basically just fried chicken and some french fries, but it was enjoyable. And it it makes me wonder why don't, you know, these TV shows or movies, when there is an iconic eatery like that, why not, like, actually open up physical locations? I feel like uh, there is enough, uh, not just nostalgia, but, you know, love for the series to, I think, support, like, maybe not a franchise nationwide, but, like, you know, how they have, uh, I guess, uh, you know, bubblegum shrimp in touristy areas. Uh, but yeah, I'd love for them to open an actual, real Los Polos from Mendes, or her. Manos, sorry. They might as uh, well just parno, par- partner with El Pollo Loco and just turn one of those locations into a, a Los Pollos Hermanos uh, location. That seems like the perfect way to do it. Yeah, but that's no fun. That's That would just be like a bunch of cheap like vinyl stickers over their logos and stuff. I want like an actual restaurant. No, but that's, what, that's, is, uh... that's what I'm saying, though, is you turn an El Pollo Loco into yeah. a Los Pollos Hermanos and like make it as authentic as possible. Sure. What they need to do is have uh, a theme park like Universal open up a a location and making a dinner theater where you go in there and you eat your food, but all around <laughs> you actors are hiding bodies and dealing drugs and uh, telling a story all around you that you have to pay attention to notice. Oh my god, that would be that'd be so good, but I don't think there'd be any theme park that would that would go that dark, right? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I was gonna say, wasn't there talk of a Hunger Games theme park? There uh, was. Yeah, a little while back in China, I think. Yeah, it all comes back to China. Um, <laughs> okay, let's move on to Brad and what he has been eating or not been eating. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, I've decided to not be a lazy piece of garbage anymore, and I'm seriously trying to lose some weight. Uh, I've always been a bigger guy and kind of just want to, as I get older, need to get a little bit healthier uh, while I'm still young and still still able uh, to exercise somewhat easily. Uh, so I've just been counting calories, doing portion control, monitoring my stuff through my FitnessPal app. And I started this on Monday, and I'm already down 10 pounds. So that's been pretty rewarding so far. Um, I yeah, I think. So. I haven't done much exercising yet, so that's been uh, good. But I'm definitely going to have to get into it soon just to uh, you know, ease my way into it and burn more calories so that I don't have to necessarily you know, monitor so closely like uh, what I'm eating, even though I still will you know, partake in counting calories and portion control. Um, so I picked up some uh, newer, quote unquote, healthier snacks. Obviously, they're not like, you know, the most healthy snacks like, a, you know, kale chips or something like that. But they're lower calorie and they're like nice little in between things that I can have between meals that are, aren't going to like, you know, completely blow up my calorie count or anything. Um, I found out that there are these like these Philadelphia cream cheese dip packs, which doesn't necessarily sound healthy, but they're only like about <laughs> 200 calories. Um, they come with like a little th- like uh, serving of either bagel chips or pretzels, and then it comes with a certain flavor of cream cheese. Um, sometimes it's strawberry, sometimes it's um, herb and garlic, sometimes it's it's chocolate, and so they're really good. The calorie count's pretty low, uh, and they're actually they give you so much cream cheese that I actually end up not really eating all the cream cheese, which is good since that's where pretty much all the calories are. Um, and then on top of that, there's also these things called Jif power ups that are kind of that are like these little 
peanut butter bites that have uh, granola and a little bit of like fruit filling in them. Uh, they have different flavors like strawberry and uh, grape and apple cinnamon. Um, and those are pretty good. They have a lot of protein in them uh, and they're they're good for in between. They help, you know, just like filling so that you're not eating a bunch of senseless stuff in between meals. So it's been, yeah, otherwise it's been, you know, lean cuisines and like quick low calorie breakfasts and that kind of thing. So just, just trying to keep the calorie count low so that I can uh, keep burning calories. Well, keep us up to date in future water coolers on how this uh, diet adventure is going. I definitely need to uh, jump back into the diet uh, universe because all, all the weight I lost months ago, I think I, I had lost like 40 pounds. I have gained it all back. So I, I got to join you after, a, you know, just after I finished this uh, fried chicken from Postmates. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, uh, let's talk about what we've been playing. Uh, Jacob, you've been playing some Star Wars. Uh, more specifically, I've been buying up some Star Wars. Uh, there are a handful of uh, Star Wars uh, board games being produced by Fancy Flight Games. Uh, I've written about most of them on the site in some capacity. My favorite of them is Star Wars Armada, which is a game where you control miniatures of Star Destroyers and the larger ships in the Star Wars universe. And unlike X-Wing, the more popu- its more popular cousin, which is a dogfight simulation where you, it's very fast-paced simulating the idea of these fighters going after each other and shooting each other down. Armada plays uh, like a naval game where these big, colossal, massive spaceships are maneuvering each- around each other, trying to get to broadsides, firing cannons. And I find it to be a blast. It reminds me so much of, um, not necessarily of Star Wars, but it, it, it feels like the naval game of my dreams. It actually plays a lot like how I would, I would want my ideal Star Trek game to play, where uh, spaceships are treated like massive ships or submarines instead of uh, instead of fighter jets. And I recently picked up the last set uh, so far, and Fancy Flight's been kind of quiet on this game up until recently. So I actually thought it may be dead or dying, but they just announced a Super Star Destroyer uh, model uh, for the game that is going to be $200 and is two feet long, so it fits in the scale of the rest of the game. <laughs> the jury's still out if I'll buy that, uh, but up until that comes out, I am now caught up in Star Wars Armada. Uh, Peter, have you played this one? I know you played uh, X-Wing. I've only gotten a demo of this, but, uh, you know, I invested so much money, hundreds and hundreds of dollars into X-Wing, and I don't even get to get that out that often. So that I just – and Armada is bigger ships, more expensive. I think they just announced, like, an Imperial Star Destroyer at Gen Con, right? It's yeah. like over a hundred bucks, or something. Yeah, uh, two hundred. Yeah, two hundred dollars. I, I just, I just can't do it, Jacob. I, I wish we lived near each other so I could, uh, I could play your copy with you. Uh, well, the other thing I've been doing is I picked up the RPG Uprising, and Peter, uh, you played the Resistance, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, Up- Uprising is a RPG set in the same universe as the Resistance board game, which also includes uh, games like Coup and One Night Revolution. And it's sort of this cyberpunk future where corporations control the government and the people on the ground are fermenting um, a revolution, trying to overthrow everything. And I picked this up because it is a release from, um, let's see, Evil Hat Productions, who is a really quality company. They put out beautiful books, beautiful hardcovers, uh, great art. They publish a lot of my favorite RPGs. This game is uh, written by uh, Brian Engard and Anna Mead. And I picked it up because I like the theme, I like this universe, I like the idea of uh, playing an RPG where I am playing a revolutionary trying to overthrow the government. Like it's a really fun concept, the idea of playing as a, as a cell of people desperately trying to overcome the odds sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, but reading through it, 
what I really like is that it feels like it's been gamified a bit compared to most RPGs, whereas most RPGs are strict storytelling uh, with, a, with a rules system. This one uh, has things like uh, secret cards, where you are handed a card for your character. It's a secret. Only your character knows. Either you're a traitor, uh, you're a hostage, you're a rival, you're a troublemaker. And it forces you to secretly roleplay in a way so that you could be uh, disrupting the story in ways that you have to because that's what the secret is. Oh, that's cool. And me- yeah, and it's meanwhile there are uh, charts that track um, uh, how well your resistance cell is reaching toward revolution. You have to like follow and like complete these objectives. And the government, meanwhile, uh, has their own chart where they, if they reach far enough, they can destroy your cell and and like pretty much end your entire uh, movement. So I haven't read through the whole thing yet. I don't know when I'll get to the table, uh, but it definitely seems like a really cool game and a really cool way to um, take the resistance universe and make that take what makes it special the idea of deceit and lying and playing a role Wait, and I have taking one that question. too does yeah. the, the game master the guy that's running the game know about the secret motives uh that i'm not sure about I'm, i haven't read that far in the book yet uh but um i would assume so because that would definitely make it uh if, if the if the gm knows <laughs> about that they can they can make a better story by yeah. forcing them to confront that but yeah i haven't gotten that far in the, in the book yet well, very cool. Uh, HT, what have you been playing? So last week I talked about how I've been hanging out with a lot of my cousins because they're in town for the weeks. And um, one of my cousins is a big gamer and she brought um, her game Overcooked to play with the rest of the family. So Overcooked is a cooperative cooking game that you can play with one to four players. And uh, my family is kind of addicted right now. So we it's basically just like, you get thrown into a kitchen and are uh, forced to make a meal or forced to serve like customers for an entire night kind of thing. Um, and um, the depending on the levels, the kitchens have different sort of obstacles. Sometimes they're different plateaus. Sometimes they're strange layouts. Sometimes there's portals. And it's very chaotic and a lot of fun. And um, especially when there's four players, which is the maximum amount, you kind of end up running into each other. And like some people end up doing the, too many of the like the chopping or too much of the washing dishes. And it all becomes a, a game of cooperation and communication more so than just trying to win. And it's a lot of fun and very addicting. And um, I recommend doing this in a large group of people just because everyone's just shouting at the screen to tell you what to do and you don't know what you're doing. So it's fun. It's uh, it's on both. It, we played it on the Switch, but it's on PS4, uh, Xbox, and um, on the computer too, on Microsoft Windows. I was going to say, I can't imagine a bunch of people huddled over, you know, the actual portable Switch console. It's like something mm-hmm. you actually have to play on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. You probably, definitely like a, the bigger the screen, the better. Yeah. Uh, and I vouch for this game too. This game is so much fun. HD. Uh, how much screaming did you do? Oh, we screamed so much. We were our <laughs> voices were hoarse by the end of the night. So, and everyone was yelling at each other. It, it, I don't know if it, it's good for bonding exactly. I don't know. We were all closer <laughs> at the end of the night. I'm sure. Well, very cool. That brings us to the end of today's water cooler episode of Slash Film Daily. Uh, as always, this podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on SlashFilm.com and all the popular podcast apps, including iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify. Uh, please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com uh, and leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And please go rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.